Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. Guide and lead us. Show us what you would like us to see through this section as we continue in this book of Job. And we ask you to guide in Jesus' name. Amen. Job chapter 6. We're going to be looking at Job's answer to Eliphaz. Eliphaz gave two chapters saying basically bad things don't happen to good people. This is going to be Job's answer to Eliphaz. So starting at verse 1. But Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed and my calamity laid in the balances together. For now it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words are swallowed up. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. The poison thereof drinks up my spirit. The terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. Does the wild ass bray when he has grass or loweth the ox over his fodder? Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt, or that which, or is there any taste in the white of an egg? The things that my soul refused to touch are as my sorrowful meat. Oh, that I might have the request, and that God would grant me the thing that I long for. We're going to stop there. So here is Job answering. He's just been told by Eliphaz, very poetically, bad things don't happen to good people. All right. Now, where Eliphaz got that doctrine, we don't know. That's basically what we have today in the prosperity gospel, that once you get saved, bad things don't happen to you. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. <laughs> kind of know some of the scriptures. They take the scriptures about blessings and everything and ignore all the blessings about trials and, and tribulations coming our way. So Job is saying, oh, that my grief or my frustrations, literally, in the Hebrew were thoroughly weighed, and my calamity or my ruin was laid in the balances together. So he says, I would just wish that you would, you would see this. He goes, I just want you to throw all my bad things in, on a scale and see how bad they really are. All right, so he's saying, hey, Eliphaz, you think, you're saying all these things out there. I just want you to put, I wish we could put my, all these bad on a scale, and you could see how much bad has happened. And then he goes in the next one, for it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Now, you think about this, you know, how heavy, is, you know, how much sand is on any one beach? And he's saying, all my calamity, if you took all the sand of the sea, put it on the scale, my calamities and my ruin are worse, would outweigh all the sand of the sea. Now, that's a pretty far-fetched statement, you know, but, but he is. Remember, he, his suffering has been great. You know, he has lost all of his possessions. He has lost his children. He has lost his health. And from his perspective, none of this is deserved. And because we had chapter 1 and 2, we know that none of it was deserved. Because God said his testimony of Job is that he's a righteous man that hates evil. So we, from our perspective, know that Job is right. Now, would we have judged Job as guilty when we were looking at him and say, all right, Job, what did you do to lose everything? Now, now we might have been nice and not said it. But, you know, we would have probably done the same thing as, as his friends are. Wow, Job, you must have really done something terrible. How could you 
you know, you're gone from being the richest man in the world, you know, in, in the area, good family, healthy, and now you have nothing. You know, and again, if we did not have verses one through two, we probably would have been joining Eliphaz and saying, yeah, bad things, that bad, you know, and ours might have been, well, that bad doesn't happen to good people. You know, they, you must have done something wrong. And this is Job saying, you know, hey, if you took all these bad things and put them in a scale, the sand of the sea would not even, would not make it, uh, make a dent into it. He's still saying the same thing he said in chapter three. Oh, woe is me. Life is miserable. Good news for us is up until his friends start hammering on him, he pretty much keeps it pretty good. All right, God, I don't understand what's going on, but, you know, I'm going to take the good with the bad. And, but he is also, as he goes through these things, he basically understands, and we've said this, we, as we go through this, we look at this. Job does have a prosperity gospel thought process. Part of what God is teaching Job in this is, Job, it's not all about prosperity and, and good health and, and everything. Uh, this is my blessings to you. And I've said this many times. We as Christians oftentimes get this place where we start paying attention to the blessings rather than the blessor or the gifts rather than the giver. And that's a whole lot of what Job is about. Quit looking at your benefits here on, on the world, but look at what God is doing. And this is important for us. And, you know, if we start paying attention to the gifts or the blessing, God sometimes will pull back the gifts and the blessings to say, hey, you're getting what you have because I gave it to you, not because you deserve it. And this is the, the really hard thing is it's so easy to slip into this idea that I got saved by grace and now I'm serving God and I'm doing all my things and now look at all the blessings I've got and I deserve them because of all the good that I've done. This is where Job and his friends are. You know, we deserve this because, you know, Job's going, I offer sacrifices for myself and my kids and I hate evil and I don't do anything. Look how God is blessing me because of what I deserve. And it's so easy for us to slide into that. Even in our day, it's so easy for us to slide into, well, God, I don't drink. I'm not, not carousing. I'm not using drugs. I'm not using your name in vain. I go to church when the doors are open and, you know, I share God. I share you with people once in a while. God, I deserve to be blessed. And the problem is that none of us deserves anything except punishment. If we really boil it down, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we sin constantly, even in our, in our saved life, we still sin. Even if it's only in thought, you know, it may not be in deed, but we, we, we sin in thought, and usually in deed at some point. And so what we deserve is nothing. We deserve hell. And we need to be very careful because it can be very easy to start thinking, you know, well, God, go look at all the good things I'm doing for you. God, you owe me because of all the stuff that I'm doing. And when we get to that point, we're in trouble. That's where Job's friends are. That's where Job started at. You know, and this is why he doesn't understand what's going on. He's thinking, I hate evil. I offer sacrifices. You know, God, I deserve what, everything that you've given me because I've been good. And now it's all gone. And we get to the end of the book and we'll find out that God's saying, huh, okay, let me tell you who you are. 
But we're having to go through many, many chapters to get there. <laughs> but this is a good book, you know, and I recommend read through the whole book because we're going to take a long time to get to where God is going to get to by chapter 34, 35. We're only on chapter 6. So we've got a long ways to go to get there. But read through the whole book. Get, get a feel for what the whole book says and see how God comes to Job and says, hey, this is what's going on. You know, I am God. You are man. You will get what I give you. And then we'll find out that God blesses him completely again at the end of his life. So this is something that is very important for us to understand is where he's at, what he's going through. And, you know, it's all in poetry, so it's very long. Each of these speeches are very long, and you have to dissect the poetry out of, out of what's being said. But right now we're seeing Job saying, hey, my misery, my misery is so bad that you could put all the sand in the world in the scale and it wouldn't even outweigh my misery. That's a lot of misery. And you know what? I almost believe that Job could say that. Uh, I have never gone through what Job's gone through. And I don't know that I've met too many people who have gone through what Job has gone through. To lose everything, his kids, and his health. Now, I've seen people go through quite a bit, but nothing, nothing to that nature where everything goes. And this is his statement. He goes, verse 3 says, For now it would be heavier than the sand of the sea, therefore my words are swallowed up. He's saying, I cannot even describe how bad things really are to me. You know, and I don't know how many times have you been in that place where you go, I can't even tell you how bad or how good. I mean, it could go either, either direction. I just don't have the words to tell you what, what's going on. That may be because of our lack of imagination, but it's also the lack of the power of words. It's hard sometimes to describe to somebody truly what's going on and feeling especially for some of our people who don't have a vocabulary anymore. But even in this, you know, can you imagine having been John on the Isle of Patmos seeing the 21st century? How do you describe what you see to these people in your day? You know, and I think about this a lot. How would he describe a car? How would he describe an airplane or a helicopter? Uh, buildings that are bigger than anything he can imagine. I've thought about that several times, you know, how difficult it would have been from somebody in his day and age to see all this stuff that he couldn't even comprehend. And we see this even when we watch futuristic films, when they try to make them something that we can't, can't think of, you know, and we see this, you know, and he had to describe this stuff. This is Job trying to say, this is how bad I, I'm really going through. You think you're seeing bad. And remember, these guys sat for a week watching Job. And when they first saw them, they didn't recognize him because of how far down he had gone and how miserable he was and how the sores covered his body. And they're going, is this really Job? So they know already how bad it is, and Job says, you don't even begin to know how bad it is. For the first week, they did what they were supposed to. They, they, were, they sat with him and cried with him, which is what he should have done all along. And then they started speaking. Of course, Job started it. Job spoke to them first, and then they responded. He's saying, you know, my words are swallowed up. I can't even describe 
what's going up. They're, they're swallowed up by the pain. And so then he goes, For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. The poison thereof drinks up my spirit. The terrors of the God do set themselves in array against me. He understands. Now he is blaming God for all of his problems. How many times do we tend to do that? The world especially. It's all God's fault. And in one side, yes, God allowed these things to happen to him. And Satan is the one that is bringing it. But Satan had to get permission. And I think this is important for us. You know, those first two chapters are so important for us. When things happen to us, it's because God has given permission to Satan to do something. And that's hard to understand. Why God would allow Satan to do this. But in this case, he's trying to teach Job a lesson. He's trying to teach Job's friends a lesson. Probably even Job's wife. But, you know, when bad things happen to us or what appear to be bad for us, I've said this over and over. The first thing we do is we look and say, do I deserve it? Have I been, have I been disobedient and not, not listening to God in the first place? If that's true, then I repent of my actions and then I suffer the consequences for my actions. But now, is that true? Like if something bad happens, could it be like Job, like God is letting Satan have a longer leash on Well, that's my second point. First point is, do I deserve it? If I deserve it, I confess and say, okay, God, help me get through the consequences. If there's nothing in there that I can say, okay, I really deserve this. I mean, not that, and I, when I say that, I don't get so, in, don't be so introspective that you say, well, I didn't uh, read my Bible <laughs> three days in a row, so I deserve, no, you know, did you really do something that deserves it? If that's the case, then you come in and say, all right, God, help me endure and show me what it is that I am supposed to learn through this. All right, because we're going through a job, a job ex, a, a, a time that God has given Satan a little extra leash, and going, okay, God, uh, give me the patience to endure and help me to learn whatever it is you want me to learn. So that could, then I'm saying that could be like what happens to us, like sometimes when something bad happens to us, because we did something and he gave Satan. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, it's two-way street. We either, and it does not necessarily need to be Satan given permission because we sow and reap. If I've done bad things, there's going to be a reaping and it doesn't take Satan to bring, bring that reaping. It's just, I sowed bad seed and I'm going to reap the result. So that's what I'm saying. The first one is, do I deserve it? Second one is, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? Because the whole purpose of God allowing these things to happen is that we learn something. And this is where Job is at the end of the book. God steps in and teaches him what he's, what he's supposed to learn. So Satan can't do anything to meanness without asking God? He has to get permission. Even for the lost world, because if he got his way, this world would be over. Because he's not going to take a chance of anybody turning to God. So if he had his way and could do what he wanted, it'd be over. He would just end it. So even during the tribulation period when he has a lot of, lot of freedom, he still doesn't have complete freedom. Otherwise, the world would be over. He said, okay, God, you took your people. I'm going to take everybody else. <laughs> All right. So he never has complete freedom. He is a created being who has to answer to God as much as he doesn't like it. 
We, we understand he is always on a leash. So God uses him. Dog on the leash, as long as they're so far. The only place you really talk about that is in Job. Well, we have Job, we have Jude, where he, Satan desired the body of Moses and, and uh, God wouldn't let him have it. There's a number of places that we see the evidence of this, but Job is the most clear one where he has to ask for permission. But we also understand that God is sovereign. Nothing happens without him allowing it. Now, that's hard for us to grab hold of. Now, sometimes we're going, God, how could you give that much freedom to, to Satan, how could you give us that much freedom? It's very hard for us to, to comprehend that. But God knows the end from the beginning, and he knows that when he allows something to happen now, he knows what it will teach us and what it will develop in us. And this is for Job. It develops him into a place where he says, okay, okay, God, now I understand. I didn't deserve all this. It's all been by your grace and by your mercy that I have received all of this stuff and not what I deserve. So hopefully our life if it's like Job at the end of it will turn out good because God, we know the end of Job is not our life. So we know that God has a plan and when you look at your life, if you look at the what seems to have been bad in your life, if you've lived long enough with God you can really see how he has used many of the things that you've gone through to maybe give you empathy for somebody else to strengthen you for the next big trial that was coming your way, uh, for other people to see you being successful through it and being encouraged. We don't know exactly why we go through so much of what we go through, but God has a reason for it. Because our book's not finished, our life isn't finished yet. And we need to be able to understand that God always has a reason, even when it doesn't look like it makes sense to us. But the good news is, Satan does not get his free will. It's an amazing thing. Satan decided to turn against God, but God uses him all the time. And it's like, well, God, why would you use Satan? Because Satan brings the evil in and, and, and harms us. And, and God says, okay, you go ahead and try to do it, and I'm going to be able to teach them when you're done. The funny thing is, he keeps doing it. If he really, you know, to me, if I really understood that I was being used, I would stop cooperating. But how many years he's been used? So? <laughs> Almost 6,000 years he's been used, and he still, and he still uses the same tricks. He still uses what's going on. You know, so it's an amazing thing that for 6,000 years, somehow in the back of his mind, he somehow thinks that one of these days, I'm going to get it over on God. You know, I don't know how he thinks that way, but you know, he's, that's the only way I can fathom that he's still, after 6,000 years, allowing God to, to use him to, to teach lessons to his people. But then he knows the book, the end of that story. So, so does Satan. He knows the Bible better than us. And he still? He, he's read Revelation. Maybe Revelation is the one book he's not allowed to read. <laughs> It's because he somehow has deluded himself that he can win. So his attitude is somehow I'm going to bring victory and revelation is not going to come true and I'm going to win. How he's deluded himself, I have no idea, but 
you know, because he's smarter than we are and he's more powerful and he's seen, he has seen the, the end and yet he is willing to, I can somehow beat God who created me. I don't understand it, but he's that deceived. So he says, God is setting himself up me. The arrows God has shot me with, the poison in my life. He goes, the terrors of God are set themselves in array or battle array. You know, so he's still blaming God for all of this stuff that's happened to him. And, you know, it's very interesting, Christians and even the world. You know, it's very interesting to me that you meet somebody who is an agnostic or, or an atheist and they'll go, Man, God is letting all these bad things happen to me. I go, I thought you didn't believe in God. I don't. Well, then why are you blaming God? And yet, that's exactly what they'll do, is they'll blame God for everything. And God has got a reason for all these things. So yes, on one side, you could probably get away with blaming God. But you have to also look at why. What is it that God is trying to teach me through these activities that come my way? What is he trying to protect me from? You know, sometimes it's for your protection that something bad happens to you and you don't get to go where you think, you're, think you wanted to go. You know, and I've had this happen to me. I wanted to go someplace and I had the car break down or not start and I'm going, and then something really bad happened where I was going, you know, where, where I was going to go. And I'm going, okay, God, I guess I didn't want to be there after all. That's not necessarily always true, but it does keep you from certain things that flat tire may have kept you out of an intersection that you were going to get destroyed in you know who knows what exactly was going to happen and so again we go to romans 8 28 where all things work together for good for those who love god and are called according to his purpose everything is for good even when it doesn't look like it's for good and when we get to heaven We'll see why, you know, maybe we'll understand why it was, why it was for good. And it's been said, and I, and I love this statement, that if we knew everything that God knew, then we would choose what God wants, to, wants for us. Even if it looks bad at the moment. If we know what was going to happen, if I made this choice and I see down the road that, man, that was the worst choice I could have possibly made, I'll be glad to choose the, what, what looked like a bad choice that led to something good in the long run. Because God knows the beginning from the end. And you know, if we understood things the way he understood them, then we would say, yes, God, I want your way. Even if my whole life falls apart, I want your way. <laughs> because there's going to be blessings, there's going to be rewards at the end of following him. And these are what's important. Uh, then he gives a kind of a very interesting, in this section of two, two verses, he goes, does a wild ass bray when he has ga uh, grass, does the, or the lowing, or lows the ox over his food, folder, can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the white of an egg? So he's basically starting his complaints again. Hey, if I had food, I wouldn't be, be crying out. If I had what I needed, I wouldn't be crying out. I don't know about this, can, a, can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? You know, I've, I've eaten the white of the egg without salt, you know, but it doesn't have any flavor. But the idea of, will it satisfy? No, something without flavor does not satisfy. If you've ever eaten something that was cooked that has no seasoning whatsoever, it's just bland, and it might fill your stomach, but there's no excitement in the eating of it because it has no real flavor. 
I think chicken is one of those dishes that you have to flavor chicken, you know, because it has very light flavor on it and it's really a boring dish to eat with unless you've seasoned it somehow. And that's what he's saying here. You know, I have no pleasure in any of what's going on for, for, in my life. And he goes, all of this stuff, you know, I've, I've lost everything. I wouldn't be crying out if I had, had, had my stomach filled and if I still had my family, you know, there'd be nothing to cry about. Uh, and, but he's saying all of these things are going on. And he says, verse 7, the, the things that my soul refused to touch are as my sorrowful meat. Here he's saying something very interesting to, to like the Jewish mind. He goes, those things that I should not have ever touched, had no desire to touch, are what I'm eating. So let's put it in the, the face of a Jew. He's going, I would never think about eating pork, and the only thing on my plate is pork. All right, now that's taking it to the extreme, but he's saying everything that I would never have ever thought of doing or eating or, or touching is the very thing that is left to me. Well, for one thing, he's lost his health, he's lost all of his possessions, and so now all that is left to him is all the stuff that he would never have considered, thought about doing. Nothing, everything worthwhile has been taken from my life. The only thing I have is what's not worthwhile. Remember, what did God say? He's a righteous man that hates evil. So he's looking at his life and nothing but evil thoughts coming through his mind that I'm hated I'm, and, and those are now what he's dwelling on. Those kind of thoughts are what he's dwelling on. And he says those are not the thoughts I ever would have had in the, in, before. Yeah, I see yeah, so, I and this is where he's at. Everything, everything that he hated about evil is now the only thing that's coming to his mind. You know, blaming God, uh, being, being bitter, being upset, all these things that he would have hated to have thought about are all that he's thinking about. And we've all been there at some point in time where everything seems to be going wrong and it's like, God, what was me? Why is me? And, you know, you start concentrating on the wrong things. And this is why I like to really dwell on the idea that Paul said these light afflictions are nothing compared to the weight of glory. Nothing. You know, and that is important for us. If we can really start dwelling on God's word when things are bad or seem to be happening, what is anything bad in this lifetime compared to heaven? And it's nothing. Now, the sad thing is, Job doesn't have those scriptures. Job doesn't have Romans 8.28. He doesn't have Paul telling him, telling him that it's nothing compared to heaven. He is way back in the time of Abraham. There is no written scripture at this point. Now, the truth is still out there. It's probably believed or, or understood, but he has no written word to fall back on. And so when these are bad things are happening, he's going, oh, woe is me. I'm terrible. I'm going to, you know, things are never going to get better. And God, I really don't understand because now I don't know what to believe because bad things do happen to good people. And you don't get wealthy just because you've been good. He goes, I, my whole religious belief system has been torn out from under me and I have no idea what to believe. Now God will do this to us when we do not believe proper doctrine. God will set us up to be attacked by Satan to destroy what we believe and say, okay, you believe, you believe this way and it's not really the way I want you to believe. 
let's turn your life upside down in that area and, and have you believe what I, what I teach. And this is why it's so important to be learning properly in the scriptures. Because if you don't, then God is going to shake your world upside down. And, you know, as we watch the Truth Project, Dr. Tackett said that it was cocoons, those times when was attacked and you're going, I, I need to really sit down and figure out, God, what you're talking about. And how do I understand, understand per- correctly? How am I understanding? Job is in one of those times saying, my whole life is being turned upside down and I don't know why. And he did not have to go back to and try to dig it all out. He's going to have to wait for God to talk to him. And his friends don't have scripture either. They believe the same things that he believes because many believe that Job taught them and they're just repeating back to Job what he already taught them and what Job's already struggling with. And that was Eliphaz's first statement. Now, bad things don't happen to good people. What, what are they seeing? Bad things happen to him. If bad things don't happen to good people, Job, bad things are, t- your, your whole life has been turned upside down and bad things have happened to you, therefore, you are bad. We don't care what you're saying, and this is what they're going to go. We don't care what you're saying, obviously, because bad things are happening to you, you are a bad person. We haven't seen this, we have saw no evidence of it, but you had some real dark, skeletons in your closet somewhere that have now been opened up. Well, this is their, this is their attitude toward him. And Job, Job is going to say, well, I would have done the same thing, but I would never have said it the way that you said it. All right? Uh, Job is basically going to say along the lines of, yeah, I really understand that what you're saying is true, but I would have been a little more gentle with you than you are being with me. And basically, they are being very harsh on him. They have judged him guilty, and they have no compassion on him at all. As we see them speak, we'll see they've already judged him. He's guilty in their mind. And there is no compassion, no, no softness in their voice. And many times, Job's is saying, you know, and he even comes close to it, you're terrible comforters. <laughs> all right, he comes close on this chapter, if we get that far tonight. Um, and then he goes on here, um, oh, that my soul might have my request and that God would grant me the one thing I long for. Even that it would please God to destroy me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Then should I yet have comfort. Yea, I would harden myself in sorrow. Let him not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should hope and what is my end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh of brass? Is not my help in me, and is wisdom driven quite from me? To him that is afflicted, pity should be showed from from his friends, but he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. I'm going to stop there because I just transitioned to the other part. So Job is saying here, I have just one request. Things are so bad... I want God to take my life. Now, I can understand this in his case. You know, from his perspective, just the pain of having lost his health. He's got boils all over his body, scratching them day and night, 
not getting any sleep. You know, it was bad enough to lose everything, but now he is sitting there. If you remember, he had on chapter three, he had a piece of clay and he's scratching at his boils and scratching at his boils. And he says, okay, I could handle this. I just told my wife, you know, naked I came into this world, naked I'll go, you know, uh, blessed be the name of the Lord, and all these things that he said, but now his health is gone. And as far as he's concerned, you know, it looks like it's never coming back. This is pretty And he's basically saying, God, I just have one thing. I want to die. Huh? Huh? Yeah. But then we need to find out what is God trying to teach us. If he's not taking us home, he's trying to teach us something. And the question is, what is he trying to teach us? And this is where Job is going to find out at the end, you know, that God is trying to teach him something. Um, and it says in verse 9, even that, the, that God would destroy me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. He is understanding in this verse that it's God that's not letting him die. He understands at this point that there's something going on that he doesn't understand, but that God is saying his life isn't over. But his prayer is, God, I am so miserable, I don't want to be here. I've lost everything. I, have, I, I can start, you know, and his first thought was, I can start over. I can, I can get a couple sheep and I can, you know, a couple goats and I can start some new flocks and I can rebuild, but now his health is gone. And, you know, when your health is gone, that's a whole other story. It's hard to rebuild by working when you don't have any health to be able to build your, build your, your life again. So the first thing, he's at least saying, well, you know, hey, you know, I lost everything. I did it once. I can do it again. All right. Uh, most people that have wealth have, have had many bankruptcies in their life, and they go, well, I'll just do it again. And that's their attitude. Did it once. <laughs> I can do it again. Now his health is gone. As far as he's concerned, it's never coming back, you know, and that's hard. When your health is gone, it's like, all right, am I ever going to get healthy enough to be able to do things again? And those of us who are getting older, we recognize the aches and pains and everything, and we're going, man, I don't know if I could start at the bottom again. I don't know if I'd want to start at the bottom again and have to go through all of this all over. And that's where Job's at. God, I just want to be done you know, it was bad enough when I lost everything and I had to start all over, but now I am not even healthy enough to be able to start all over again. Because all I can do is sit here and scratch these, scratch these boils all day long and it's not doing a bit of good. They're getting infected, they're, they're making me feel bad, and I'm probably running a fever because of all the scratching of the boils and all the stuff that was going on and saying, just take me home. I'm done, God, take me home. And he, again, he doesn't have the, the truths that we have where Paul says, you know, no matter what's happening, it's nothing compared to glory. Just endure it. He doesn't have that, that advanced of a doctrine. It's well advanced, but nothing, nothing to that degree. But he is saying that, God, I understand that you're holding me here. You haven't let me die, and I don't understand why you have not let me die. Why? Because he doesn't know what, he doesn't know what God knows. Once you learn your lesson, Job, I'm going to restore everything back to you. He doesn't know that. 
He doesn't have the scripture that says that all things work together for good. All he knows is God's in control and I don't know why all this stuff's happening. And I'm just so bad, I want to end it all. Now, luckily, he didn't commit suicide, which could have been the, in the problem. Um, and then he goes, God, you know, let loose your hand. Then should I have, have comfort? Yea, I would have hardened myself in sorrow. Or I would have leapt for joy in this writhing if you would just let me go. All right? So... I can see that a little bit because it says, yea, though I, though I would harden myself in sorrow in, in King James is what it says. The idea of the hardening is I would leap for joy at the writhing. So he's going, I'm going to leap for joy or be delivered. If God takes me, then I'm delivered from this body. I will enjoy and I will enjoy his presence. So the interlinear better on that because the way that it read, reads in the in the King James is, you know, that he is miserable. But no, he's saying, if I died, I'm going to have a great blessing because I get to leave this painful body and I leap for joy out of it <laughs> and enter into heaven. And ultimately, that is what is true for all of us. The ultimate end for us is to go to heaven. And that's what Paul said. These light afflictions are nothing in comparison to heaven. So no matter what happens to us, because we know the, the rest of the story, what's the great news for us? Eventually, we get to leave this body and, and enter into heaven for perfection for eternity. That's great news. Job understands this. He goes, you know, he understands this. He goes, for I have not concealed or hidden the words of the Holy One. He understood, and somehow God spoke to him at times, somehow, and apparently, just as it did with Abraham, he was spoken to. Yes, Sam, you have a comment or a question? Uh, I was going to um, read, because this is the English Standard Version. Uh-huh. Uh, the verse that, verse 10. Okay. Okay. So he feels like he's been steadfast to the truth he's received from the Lord. Yeah, I have not concealed the words. And this has been his statement all along. I do not know why all this is happening to me because I have been true to God. And that was God's testimony of him. He's a righteous man that hates evil. Eliphaz on his first statement, well, Job, we know that bad things do not happen. Therefore, you are bad. Why don't you just admit what you've did and get it over with? And then God can, then you can go through this suffering knowing that you're receiving the consequences that you deserve and you can get on with your life. That was, that was his statement. Remember my first statement when I said when bad things happen to, seem to happen to us, our first goal should be, have I lived a life that deserves the, the, the attack that I have? 
or the reaping of what, I, what I've had. That's our first. If I look and say, well, I don't think I've been that bad. Yes, I've had some, you know, you know, missteps, but nothing bad enough to deserve what's happening. Then I go through the second thing. God, what is it you're trying to teach me? And this is judgment. You know, God, just take me home because I have not, I, I don't deserve this pain. I don't, I don't want to go through it. I have, not, I have not denied you in front of people. Just take me home and get it over with. All right. He's come very close to what his wife told him to do. You know, you know, he hasn't cursed God at this point. She said, just curse God and get it over. Let him, let him give him a reason to end your life. And that's when he said, oh, foolish woman, you don't know what you're saying. But he's coming real close to it here. God, if I could just have my wish, take me home. I'm not going to curse you to get, get home, but just take me home. I'm tired of what's going on. And we've probably all been there at some point in our life where we're going, God, I just don't know. I want to just go home. And this is Job's statement at this point. <laughs> Let's get it over with, God. You know, just take me home. I'm tired of what is going on. And, you know, we don't know again how long. We know that his friends sat there and watched him for a week. We know that everything happened to him like in one day because everybody came to him as one was speaking, the next one came. So in one day, he lost everything and his family. And then Satan came back from God and, and then took his health away from him. And we don't know what space of time went there, but probably not very long because Satan is putting full, full court press on him. We, then his friends come in and watch him for a week and then they start speaking. And even though it takes 30 some chapters for them to stop speaking, all right, uh, how long did it take them all to hammer him? Probably not much more than a week. So all of this is happening to Job probably in less than four to six months and maybe even less than a month, all right, how fast everything hit him. And he is miserable. He doesn't understand what's going on. It goes against his doctrine. It goes against everything he thinks he knows about God. And all he's looking at and saying, because he understands God's sovereign, he said it right there, the only reason I'm alive is because God doesn't want me to, won't let go of me. I'm alive because God will not let me die. And he's going, God, I just wish you'd let me die because I am not happy with what's going on. I'm miserable. It's terrible. Just let me go home. And he understands that. And he understands God's sovereignty. And again, remember when I first started this study, I told you the problem most people have with this book being dated as one of the oldest books of the Bible is the extent of the theology in it. The, the theology is so well developed that they go on. There's no way that men 4,000 years before Jesus, well, 2,500 years before Jesus, would have had this kind of theology. Because men were stupid back then by their, by their understanding. But men have never been stupid. Matter of fact, we've been stupider now than we were back then. Yes, we're smart as far as technology and, and stuff, but they understood. They understood God with their communication with him. Any... Is 
Oh, definitely, definitely. They had they had communication with God. Was talking to various people. I mean, he talked to Balaam. He talked to Moses. He talked to Abraham. He talked probably to Job. He talked to Adam, and and he even talked to Cain after he murdered his brother. So it's you know God spoke more to people in those days for whatever reason. Maybe we've lost a lot of our spiritual senses with the stuff that's happening. Uh, I don't know. But there was communication from God. And God spoke with Adam and Eve from the very beginning and laid out a whole lot of stuff about the theology that we are still following to this day that we don't, that wasn't written in the Bible. Right? Why, do, why do people sacrifice? Well, because God made that first sacrifice to show them that blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins because he killed the animals for them to be clothed with. So he showed them, he showed them things that we don't fully understand. He talked directly to them. And Adam and Eve lived just a, just a short 940-some years. I mean, it's pretty... You know, I've had plenty of time to talk to them and teach them things that we would never have known. And how long were they in the garden before, before they fell? We don't know. I don't think that it was decades or centuries, but even if it was just a couple of years, they walked with God every evening. You know. He was with them. How much did he teach them about the stars and the, and the planets and, and all that stuff? We don't know. But we know that in just a few generations, they're already doing metallur advanced metallurgy that we didn't relearn until 1,400 years after the flood. You know, they're already dealing with brass and, and advanced metallurgy and building instruments and everything. Uh, and then the flood comes and we don't get back into the brass age until like 1,400 years after the flood. You know, so how much did they know that we did not know is an amazing thought and how much spiritual information came from that period through noah to the rest of the rest of the people after that to be looked at by job who has a very advanced theology and understanding of who god is and what he's done he goes um where did i leave off verse 11 what is my strength that i should hope and what is my end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength in the st strength of stones or is my flesh of brass? So he's basically going, what kind of strength do I have? Where is my strength? He goes, do I have strength uh, in my own strength? Is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh brass? He goes, I am just flesh. I'm flesh and blood. I do not have you know, I'm not made out of stone. I'm not made out of brass. These things are hitting me, and I am failing. And this is something that is very interesting. If you are one of those people that think that I can get through anything and I don't need God, God has a way of turning your life upside down to show you that you need him. He will not let us be self-reliant because he does not let flesh stand in his presence. He is not going to be able to have us go to heaven and go, God, see, I'm here because of all the good stuff I did. I was so strong, I never failed. And God says, uh-huh. That's why I sent all the bad things in to make sure that your flesh did not stand. Now, some of the, for some of us who are very stubborn and hard-headed, it may take a lot to get us there. And I'm one of 
Those people, one of those people, and learned learned to be softer lately, but used to be very hard-headed. I am going to get through this no matter what. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a manager. I am an organizer. I am a planner. I am very strong-willed. Yeah, I am going to make sure I get to the end, and God, I don't need you to get there. Even though I was a Christian and I knew that I needed God, it was like, I can make it. I can, I can put together a plan that will get me through this. Job is saying, hey, God, I'm, I'm just flesh and bone. I am not made out of stone. I am not made out of brass. All of this stuff is starting to get to me. All of that, I've lost everything. My health is gone. God, I am falling apart. Uh, verse 13 says, is, is not my help in me? Is wisdom driven quite from me? To him that is afflicted, pity should be shown from his friends, that he, but he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. He goes, even my wisdom has, is going out. Because remember, when his wife first talked to him, he's saying, you're a foolish woman, we've got to accept good and bad. Now he's to the point where he goes, I don't know anything. God, what I thought I knew, the wisdom I have in me, has been driven away. God, he goes, I believe that when you do good things, you got blessed. I believe that all these things, and God, what I believe doesn't seem to be true anymore. When we get there, we're where God really wants us, because then we're teachable. When we're basing in what I think I know and how to live by what I know, we're not very teachable most of the time, because I know the answers. Have you ever met somebody who knows all the answers to everything and is unteachable? I've met many people like that. Solomon. Huh? Solomon. <laughs> well, Solomon had God's wisdom until he failed. But God will break the person who thinks they know everything and is unteachable. Now, it's one thing to be very smart and understand and be teachable and say there's things that I may not understand completely. And then God can gently teach you. But if you're going to be one person who's very unteachable, God has to come in and basically crush you to make you teachable. And unfortunately, I think Job was probably one of those people. He thought he knew what he knew. And, you know, when I do good, I get blessed. If you're not, if you're not being blessed, you're not doing good. Now, he was gentler with the people than his friends, because that's what he says in this verse. He goes, to him that is inflicted should be shown from, uh, pity should be shown to him from his friends. So Job is basically saying, if I had met somebody who had everything taken away from them, I knew that they were wrong, but I would have shown them pity. I would have been kind to them. He's now chastising Eliphaz. You did not treat me the way I should have been treated. Even if you think I'm guilty, you should have had some pity for me and where I'm at. All right? Uh, and he says, but he forsook the fear of the Almighty. He says, that's not the way God deals with people. God deals gently with us when, we, when we're broken before him. And he says, Eliphaz, you did not show pity. You have walked away from wisdom. Now, and it's kind of interesting when you think about this. Here he is in all of his pain, all of his suffering, knowing that he agrees with Eliphaz as far as the fact that he should have, have a reason for it, but he says, I don't deserve it. 
And Eliphaz, you should have come in with some pity and comfort instead of this accusation and hard, hard pressing. He goes, you have abandoned the wisdom of God. He is correcting Eliphaz in all of his pain and all of what he's going through. He's correcting this, this man who's delivered a message to him. I love it when somebody is really one of God's children and they understand God, even when they're suffering, even when they're walked away from God, they can still give God's message out. It may not be as effective as it was, but they still know the truth and can speak it. And this is where he's at. He says, Eliphaz, you have failed. You have failed. You showed no pity in what was going on. Verse 15, my brethren have dealt deceitful as a brook, and as a stream of brooks they pass away, which are blackish by reason of the ice, and there wherein the snow is hid. What time they wax warm they vanish, when it is hot they are consumed out of their place, the, the paths of their way are turned aside, they go to nothing to perish. The troops of Tima look at the... Looked, the companies of Siva waited for them, Sheba, and they were confounded because they had hoped. They came thither and were ashamed. For now they are nothing. You see my casting down and are afraid. Did I say bring? Okay, we'll stop there because I want to get that last part. All right, so it's staying here. Very interesting because this is not clear in the King James either. He says, they have dealt deceitfully as a brook. The actual word for brook here is a word that we know very well, well, a dry wash. All right. So he says, I went to where the water should have been, and it was dry. And then he goes, he goes further in, and he goes, and the streams of the brook that pass away, or the running wash in this case. And we know that feeling very well around Arizona. You have a dry wash, you get rain, and it turns into a torrent, which is still not of any use to you. You can't get water from that water, that, that running wash that is running cr crazy. See, and I know where the thought of that. I was talking about a stream. Yeah, but it's, it's different from the Hebrew. He's talking, and we know those terms, dry washes. The yeah. desert people understand dry wash. Now, if you were back on the East Coast, most of those creeks and rivers never dry up. They, they may dwindle down, and even when they run hard, it's not that big a deal. But for us out here, we know what a dry wash is. We know that that's where the water runs, and we also know that when it runs, they're deadly. And this is what he's saying. He's going, my brethren, my friends here to help me, came in like a dry wash. It was worthless. And then when they did give me anything, it was so much that it was worthless. He's basically saying, you are worthless people. You are worthless helpers. And, and it goes, and they are blackish or darkened by reason of ice and wherein, wherein the snow is hid. If you have enough snow and ice, everything is obscured and darkened, even though, even though you see the glass, uh, the, the sunshine will be filtered through it, but it is dark under this. And I don't know if anybody's ever walked on much snow, but sometimes you step someplace that looks nice and solid, and you end up knee-deep or hip-deep in a, in a hole that you didn't see because the snow does not hold you up like it did in the other places. 
I've had that happen to me. I almost twisted my ankle when I was hiking by myself where I shouldn't have been hiking. Uh, and nobody knew where I was at, so if I had twisted my ankle up on that mountain in that, in that spot, I'd have been in trouble. Why? Because it looked solid. It looked like everything else. But the, the snow and the ice cover those things. He says there's these pits. There's these pits that are out there. And he goes, and what time they wax warm finish, and when it is hot, they are consumed in their place. So the heat will melt the ice, he's saying, and everything, everything will disappear. Uh, it says, the paths of their way are turned aside or twisted in motion. All right? He says, the path is not straight. Now, this is one of the things I have seen out in the wilderness. The paths go all over the place sometimes if you're trying to follow a wilderness path. Uh, and I kind of like the ones that are man-made because they pretty much go straight. <laughs> but if you're following a wilderness path, who knows where it goes? It goes this way and it goes that way. And then you find out it wasn't even a path at any time. It was your own imagination. All right. Um, and he's saying this is what these paths are like. And they're consumed out of their place. They just disappear. Yeah, he's, he's got a quite an interesting, interesting thing he's trying to say. He goes, we thought we were following a path and it disappeared. It totally disappeared and, and, and was consumed. And then he goes, the troops of Tema looked and the company of Sheba waited for them. These are two different nations that he's referring to. Tema is a place uh, where the ninth son of Ishmael, or his ninth, ninth son of Ishmael uh, was in, and then Sheba was the Sabians that we talked about from, from the southern part of Arabia. So each of these people have relationships and remember, each of these names we're giving you are somehow related back to Abraham. So there were only one or two, maybe three generations at most from Abraham. And Job is one of the elders of this time, so he's right about the same age as Abraham. And so all these different people we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Eliphaz and, and all these guys, so they are related to Abraham through various, various routes. Uh, so we are very clearly in that period of time and as we're going forward on here. I'm going to try to reach the end. We're going to go a little over. Um, he says, they were confounded or ashamed because they had hoped or had confidence. And they came to there and were ashamed. Now this is kind of a hard statement to understand because they had confidence and hope that something was going to happen and it didn't happen and now they're ashamed. All right, his enemies were coming against him, and he says they were confident, and yet they did not happen. Now, some people take this and say that it's Job that had this hope, but it's very clear that he's talking about these enemies that are assailed against him. The enemy was assailed against him that had hope. All right, uh, and it goes, for now you are nothing. You see my casting down and are afraid. Did I say bring unto me, give me reward for for me of your substance, or deliver me from my enemy's hand, or redeem me from the hand of the mighty. Teach me, and I will hold my tongue, and cause me to understand wherein I have erred. How forcible are the right words, but what does your argument reprove? Do you imagine to reprove words and the speeches of one that is desperate, which are as the wind? Yea, you overwhelm the fatherless, you dig a pit for your friend, 
Now therefore be content, look upon me, for it is evident unto you if I to you if I lie. Return, I pray you, let it be not be iniquity. Yea, return again, my righteousness is in it. Is there iniquity in my tongue? Cannot my taste discern perverse things? Here is his big criticism of them. All right. Um, he says here, for you are nothing at my casting down or my terror. You know, I, am all, I am going through all these bad things and you do not have any sympathy. This is kind of an interesting statement. They had no sympathy. Uh, listening to a song one time, and it goes, there's no need to be right when you know that you are, uh, uh, there's no, no need to be kind when you know that you're right. You know, talking about Job's friends, and that's kind of their attitude. We know we're right, and Job, we are just going to hammer you until you agree with us that you, that you deserve this. And Job keeps telling them, no, you guys should have had some pity, some softness. And this is a lesson for us. Even if we think somebody is really bad and deserves what they have, do we go in there and smack them around a little bit to make things worse, or do we go in and show the love of God and the kindness of God to them and then softly correct? All right? Um, and then he's going into them. He goes... He's got three, uh, two verses. He goes, did I even ask you for anything? Did I say bring, bring unto me or give me, give me a reward or, or gift out of your substance? Deliver me from my enemy's hands? He goes, did I even ask for help? And the answer to that is no. When we read the first parts, they just showed up. And then they started talking to him. And Job goes, I've never asked you. I've never even asked you guys to give me two goats and two sheep and some donkeys to start new flocks. I did not ask you to, to deliver me from anything. He goes, I have not done anything, and you guys are criticizing me. You guys have come after me like I have been begging you to help me out of my problems. And so his accusation is, you know, why are you guys being so mean and nasty to me when all of this is going on? And he goes, now a very interesting, verse 24, teach me and I will hold my tongue and cause me to understand wherein I have erred. How forceful are right words, but what does your argument reprove? Okay, what he's saying is, if, I have, if you see something that I have done wrong, tell me. Tell me what it is that I have done wrong. He goes, if you have seen something that is real, tell me. And I will listen. I will be teachable, he's saying, at this point in time. I will listen if you can point out, Job, you did this. And he says, but then he goes, but what, are, uh, what does your argument, your, your judgment reprove? He goes, you guys are saying I'm guilty, but you're not pointing to anything that I have done wrong. He goes, there's something wrong with your argument. You, you are not teaching me. You are not giving me something that I can learn from. All right? And this is the whole idea that the words of a friend can hurt, all right, uh, and is, are more useful than the kisses of an enemy, all right, he's saying, if you have something that is real, tell me. You know, if there's something you see that I have done, if you can point to anything that I have done to deserve this, tell me now so that I can repent. He goes, but your accusations, your judgments aren't doing any good. 
And this is why we have to be very careful when we do it. First, we love on somebody, we build them up. And if we actually see or have something revealed, then we gently tell them what God has shown us and hope that they're going to respond. And that's Job's argument. <laughs> you guys are just saying I'm bad and guilty, but you're not saying anywhere, in, anywhere at all, what is it that I have done? You're just saying I'm bad. And he says, your words are worthless. He goes, um, do you imagine to reprove words and speeches of one that is, that is desperate, which are as the wind? Again, he's saying you're empty words. Your empty arguments are coming at me. There's no value in what you're saying. These are pretty powerful arguments. And this is Job, and we don't really think of Job correcting them often on this, but this is his whole thing. He's saying, basically, you are, he's a terrible, you're, you're doing a terrible job of, of correcting. You're doing a terrible job of encouraging <laughs> because you're not even on the right path. You are empty words. It says wind coming, coming against me. Yea, you overwhelm the fatherless and you dig a pit for your friend. Yeah. Here, here's your words. All you're doing is attacking. You're already digging my grave and you haven't even, you know, and I'm supposed to be your friend and you're digging this pit around me so that I can be pushed in. And, you know, he's going through this. He goes, now therefore be content to look upon me for it is evident unto you if I lie. He goes, look at me. You will know that I'm not a liar. And if you know the truth, you know that I'm not lying. And that's basically what he's saying. Look at me. You can tell that I'm not lying. I am not lying about not deserving this. I'm not lying about how bad things are. You guys are, he's kind of being nice to them. You guys are truthful men that know truth when you see it. All right. Uh, and he says, return, I pray, let it not be an iniquity. Yea, return again. My righteousness is in it. Is there iniquity in my tongue? Cannot I taste my taste discern perverse things. He goes, I know when evil is there. You know, how does this work out? Because a truthful person can understand lies. You know, and see lies when they come their way. Now, the very interesting thing is liars cannot perceive lies because that's all they know is lies. And they don't understand truth because they don't, they don't know. And this goes into the whole idea that people have said many times, how do treasury agents get trained? to find a counterfeit? Well, they get told what, what a real one looks at and they get to handle nothing but real money for a long period of time. And then their final test is that they slip a, a counterfeit in there and because all they've done is handle real stuff, they all of a sudden the counterfeit stands out. How do we know when a counterfeit is in there? Is because we know truth. And it's an amazing thing when the Holy Spirit lives in us and we've been dealing with truth the Holy Spirit will sound alarm bells when the lie comes into our path. And I've had this happen. I'll be listening to a radio, and it's kind of just background noise for me a lot of times when I'm listening to these people. And all of a sudden, something will be said, and the Holy Spirit will say, start paying attention because either I need to hear what's being said or I don't want you to hear what's being said. Happened to me this week on the radio. I turned on the, on the radio station, the radio station I always listen to, and immediately the Holy Spirit said, turn it off. And I started listening to a few things. And I'm going, oh, come on. You guys are so far off in, from truth. And I turned it off. Oh, I actually switched it over to my music. <laughs> but, you know, are we sensitive enough with God's 
spirit and truth to hear when the lies are there. And this is really a true thing. When we know the truth, we understand the lies. And this is why, you know, we have people who go, well, you need to know all about the cults and all about the false religions and everything. I go, no, I don't. I just need to know truth. So that when they speak a lie, I know that it's a lie. I don't need to know what they believe. I don't need to know why they believe what they do. All I need to know is that what they're saying is not true. Because I know the truth. And this is what he's saying. If you guys really understood truth, you would know that I'm speaking the truth. He goes, basically, get right. <laughs> this is where he's at with them. He's saying, you're not good comforters right now. You're not, you have judged me guilty. You're not listening to what's going on. You're not listening to what's being said. You know that I'm not a liar. Why are you calling me a liar? And you know he's reproving them at this point. All right, we're going to end there. Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we go through. Lord, help us to learn to know truth. Help us to learn to be loving and kind to people that don't seem to show that same level of truth that we, we expect. And we thank you for all that you're doing in our life. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.